there's so many vocal LGBTQ women in sports that they are making a change and allowing for other LGBTQ women to be themselves and going into sports. And on the men's side, we don't see that as an example for some reason. We don't see that as as what can happen. We don't see them as our gay heroes because we don't think that they had it as tough, which is, is insane. You know, that's what I would like to to get across and 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 just open up. I just don't think it's gotten enough into the mainstream so that, you know, we can all sort of reference in our head, oh, a David Cope, oh, a Billy Bean, and just keep those lessons in mind and not have to repeat history. Welcome to Politicology. I'm Ron Steslow. Much to the chagrin of some number of vocal sports fans, politics has been interwoven with the top stories driving sports coverage for decades. Sports is not just matchups and scores or fantasy points and spreads. Sports excites us and unites us because it is a celebration of all of the things that make us human. Sports is a showcase of peak athletic ability, of sacrifice and of triumph, of love and heartbreak. And it gives us a window into the struggles and challenges and roadblocks that millions experience every day, but we may not all be attuned to. So even as someone who doesn't regularly watch sports, I'm really excited for this conversation because there are dozens of threads we could pull on today of the innumerable links between sports and politics and why they are so intertwined. But specifically today, I want to talk about the plight of LGBT athletes and the attempts to exclude trans athletes spreading across the country And what that means for not just our beloved collegiate and professional sports teams, but the athletes, young and old in our communities, being told they do not belong. So my guest today is Israel Gutierrez, and we're going to explore the link between issues we think of as political and the stories and narratives driving sports. Israel is a reporter and columnist covering the NBA for ESPN. He makes frequent appearances on ESPN shows, including Highly Questionable and Around the Horn. He has previously covered the Marlins and the Heat for the Palm Beach Post and Miami Herald, and he's among the most prominent openly gay figures in sports media. Izzy, thank you so much for joining me for this conversation today. Ron, my pleasure. Thanks for having me. And it was very well said uh, how you opened the (laughs) podcast there. Thank you. So, you know, first, why don't we start broadly? And I just want to ask you what it meant to you whenever you read or hear some iteration of someone telling you to stick to sports. Uh, When someone says something like stick to sports or even shut up and dribble, right? What are they showing about themselves and what does that say to you? You know, it's interesting, and you mentioned this in your open, sort of the intersection of sports and politics and how it's essentially impossible to avoid. And people say these days, but I mean, let's be honest, it's always been the case. I mean, you can go back to uh, to why we even play the national anthem in our sports. It was just basically around World War One to get some, you know, enthusiasm mm-hmm. and get some uh, patriotism uh, and the feelings of, you know, just any any positive feelings toward your country at the, the beginning of a baseball game. And then all of a sudden we've been playing that ever since. And so um, it's sort of the ultimate irony for me as at the time, and I don't know how much this had to do with my decision-making, but at the time being a closeted uh, gay male who decided to get into the sports journalism industry because I wanted to get away from the real world. Mm. Because, you know, my initial instinct coming out of high school um, or in high school rather was to be a lawyer. You know, I was president of my debate team. I was very much, uh, I thought I could be, you know, an excellent trial lawyer and then realized that, you know, while there might be some money in that and while it might be exciting at times, eh, 90 some percent of the time it's boring. And so let me go do something where I don't have to think about the everyday when I can um, just have fun in, in a career where I'm not chasing dollars and just do things that make me happy. And that, you know, I've always said to myself, I want to leave the politics to those who are, you know, more intelligent or more well-versed in it or, um, you know, who wanted to go that route from the beginning. And, you know, now that I, you know, going through this career and having sort of sprouted in the industry faster than I anticipated, you know, and being put in this position. And I say put in this position of having this platform at ESPN is because I never really sought the mm. television aspect, right? I, I would always, I'd always been a writer, um, graduated to a columnist. And then, you know, once 
I became an opinionated columnist. All of a sudden, you know, TV came at calling for me. And, and now, you know, much to my chagrin, uh, I am not writing uh, currently at all for ESPN. I do have the option to, I believe, but I just, you know, there's nothing um, consistent there. And I'm doing almost strictly TV. And so given this platform now and the time that we're in, it is entirely unavoidable. Politics is uh, in the conversation of sports on a daily basis. And frankly, while I had gotten into the career because I wanted to avoid it, now it's the most important part of my job to me because because of what I've gone through personally, but just because I've lived and just because I understand, you know, the priority levels or the tiers of what's important. And, you know, I think at the beginning of the pandemic, we all talked about, you know, sports being a product of a functioning society and we yeah. shouldn't have those sports if we can't figure out how to conquer, you know, a disease that will kill us or a virus that could potentially kill us. And I think um, while we've gotten those sports back, I think more people need to, more people have, but I also think more people need to sort of rediscover where sports go in that, you know, priority list, in that tier system. Um, Pat Riley called, uh, I remember, I'll never forget this. I will always, you know, quote him on this even after he's gone is, you know, sports is the toy department of human affairs. Wow. And that's good. If you can't recognize that that is part of real life and eventually they're going to get involved um, and, you know, recognizing which one's more important than the other, then you've got a skewed vision of pretty much everything. And so I go on these shows around the horn, highly questionable. And I talk about the sports and it's fun and it's still a release um, from the everyday, but, you can't separate it from the everyday because if you just have the discussions, eventually you're going to get into something that becomes political yeah. and you can just go back to, you know, Jackie Robinson. It, yeah. it doesn't matter how, what era you go to, you will find political discussions spilling over into sports. How about, you know, I mean, is there any more of a political discussion than having your sports heroes just go to war for your country at, for a time and then come back? So the idea of stick to sports is it's not antiquated. It never existed. And so yeah, it it does bother me. And it is just sort of the irony of my career that this is where I am when my goal going into it was, hey, I don't want to talk about serious stuff. I don't want to have to write about serious stuff. I definitely don't want to have to go to county commission meetings and jot down <laughs> what everybody's. Oh, my God, it drives me nuts. But, you know, now, given where we where I am and where we are as a planet, frankly, um, you know, too much has changed for for me to just stick into that little window. So where do you think that we get that idea and where do you think it's coming from? Because some people do seem to believe in this sort of fantasy land before time, right? That sports were once covered completely apolitically. And and as you just eloquently said, that was never true. Why do we see that narrative being driven so hard right now? Because people want to avoid the truth. Because where sports was an escape. Now people just want to, to cloak themselves in it because it seems to be, at least there's this narrative in people's minds that it seems to be the, the safe space. It seems to be the, it's C team, cheer for team. It's, it's oversimplified. And you never, you can, frankly, if you really wanted to really avoid the political subjects. I mean, there's plenty of channels, there's plenty of radio stations, there's plenty of television stations that do exactly that. They'll not, not only do they stick to sports, there's more uh, specialized stations that talk about gambling and sports, there's specialized hmm. stations that talk about specific sports. So you can absolutely find all those things, but it's really, it's folks that are saying that are just telling on themselves because they're just saying, hey, I don't want to know what's real all the time. I want to believe that this is that this fantasy could be real. So don't bring, you know, realism into my games and into my fantasies. And Ooh. it's just basically been a place for those who don't again, don't want to get into the politics or don't want to admit their politics uh, publicly for them to say, hey, this is my safe space. I don't have to, we don't have to create arguments here even though I might be kind of an evil person. Like that's not, that, there, there should be no place like that, right? I yeah. mean, 8chan is that yeah. place. That <laughs> well, place? there are, yeah, exactly. There are places for that. <laughs> you know, you just made me think of something. I'm not sure if you'd be familiar with it, but there's this book called The Path written by Michael Puitt. He's a professor of Chinese history at Harvard. And the point of the book is about how rituals can teach us to live as if something is true. And sports maybe can be a place where we are able to 
to, to share an experience as if something were true, and maybe that's something that could be true, is that we've we've all sort of agreed to the rules by which we're going to be bound by in this game, in this experience. And maybe in that way, it's something that we don't have a lot of in the arena outside of sports. I, I don't know if you've if you're familiar with that that concept of these av- as if rituals, but listening to that, I've, I haven't heard that phrase before. But I think part of the problem is you know the idea that sports are these rituals with these unchangeable rules. Like yeah. um, they should be flexible mm-hmm. because the goal isn't to you know to to continue to play sports by these rules. It's to continue to allow sports to be an entertainment uh, source for us. That's all it is. It's just like saying, hey. Um, you know, you can't change music. Well, of course, music has evolved over the course of you choose whichever one you 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 want for that entertains you and, and you consume it. And so uh, I think with sports, there's also that there's that argument that, oh, it should be traditional. It should be, mm. you know, a ritual and what we're used to. And again, that's just people uh, resisting change. And when you get to the idea of resisting change, I mean, frankly, it's it's anti-American resisting change and, and it's an anti-inclusive, which is also anti-American. And so um, I think, you know, in, in that respect, sports can sort of be a leader and not something that says, hey, we're just stuck in, in tradition and rituals. We can advance while still bringing the joy of entertainment. To yeah. So speaking of resisting change, let's talk about trans athletes. So across the country, bills that would preclude trans people, including trans youth and teens, from participating in sports teams or leagues that match their gender identity are advancing in state legislatures. So for some context here, Idaho became the first state ever to prevent transgender women and girls from playing in leagues or teams for female athletes last summer. And the statute actually defines the word team as very broad. Mississippi, Arkansas, and Tennessee have passed legislation restricting transgender athletes this year. Florida in the House, they voted to ban transgender athletes from women's and girls' scholastic sports earlier this month. And in all, bills that would restrict trans participation are moving in at least 30 state legislatures. And I want to talk about the real reason uh, behind these efforts in just a moment. But first, before we do, I want to address the claims head on and get your take on what the stated reasoning uh, is for not allowing trans athletes to participate on teams that match their gender identity. And how is it being tied to this idea of fairness? Well, that's that's the, the extremely frustrating part. And I just wanted to read a quote from a senator in Florida who yeah. said her name is Kelly Stargell and she sponsored the bill. Here in Florida, which uh, just as an update, it seems to be sort of stuck and, and it might not actually go through, uh, which I don't think like, I don't think people are really celebrating because it's probably just a delay. And it's not because of, you know, the idea that they, they shouldn't pass it. It's just because it's just got caught up some uh, with some other nonsense. But the quote is, I believe Florida should protect the ability of girls and women to safely participate in athletics. And I think there is a consensus among my colleagues surrounding that underlying policy objective. And the thing that's maddening is, is this is the first place people go. And this is not new to this particular uh, subject. It's anywhere where you're sort of enforcing change and they go to the fear mongering and they go to, to a place that, you know, it's the same thing you heard um, about uh, accepting homosexuality. Well, what's next? Are we going to, you know, are you going to let them, uh, the gays marry animals? And you just make the next leap to where people say, hey, you know, if they haven't given this any thought, they say, hey, you know, maybe maybe that is true. Let's just nip this in the bud. And the idea that the transgender uh, girls and women are going to all of a sudden dominate women's and girls sports and, and make it you know, less competitive. Is it's, it's exactly that. It's just fear mongering. It's absolutely insane to consider that any young person, OK, who's dealing with, you know, sexual questions is going to say, you know what? This is what's going to be the tipping point for me. I'm going to be crazy successful in sport and maybe be famous and maybe make money. And I'm going to change my gender for that goal. And and it's absolutely insane to me how much people value fame and money to think that that is the driving force for any human being to go as as extreme a nature as, as changing who they are or how they were born. And I think... You know, 
to, to just speak in general terms, I do think that there, you know, we have been so for so long, obviously caught up in the binary of gender and, and, and sex and believing that those are the, that the proper extremes when really they are just the extremes that there are probably a lot of confused uh, children and young adults who, because of those standards, think that they, hey, maybe because I'm a little bit different, I have to go extremely to the other side. And if, and if But the solution to that is to be more open, is to be more inclusive, is to let everybody know, hey, this is a spectrum of humanity, so this is more normal. So don't think that because you are slightly different or even significantly different that you have to make an entire leap to, you know, to, to the other side of, of that spectrum. And so I think by, by opening up these conversations and just by letting people understand what exactly uh, it is to be trans and, and, and the feelings involved and the difficult decisions involved, um, I think it would make more people understand just, just exactly that, just what it means to be trans. But also when it comes to, to, to the idea of sports, uh, girls and women's sports being in danger. Yeah. That's strong language. First of all, I mean, so the idea that I have like, if I just want to participate in a sport, like I am threatening other girls. Yeah. It's insane. It's the same idea of, you know, saying homosexual predators, like all of us are, are predators and just watch out, keep your children safe. It's, yeah. it's the utmost of fear mongering and, and it's, it's painful. Look out it's for the painful. gay agenda. Yeah. <laughs> it's, uh, and it's harmful, especially we're specifically talking about girls sports. We're specifically talking about girls under the age of 18 and these high school bills. And you're telling them that because of how you feel naturally, when you haven't even figured out your life yet, that you are a danger to other girls. Like what you would, what I would do to myself if people just flatly told me that as a child, and these are adults that I believe they know better than me. I would, I don't know what I would do to myself. That's where, you know, self-harm comes into play. That's where all these, you know, lack of self-esteem comes into play and, you know, the suicide rates and, it's and never mind just implanting these fears and thoughts into others who've never given this any thought. And this is the first information that they hear. And they say, well, that my mind is made up. Those are evil people and they're harmful to my girls. It's it is the it is the most idiotic form of yeah. thinking. And uh, Kevin Blackstone, he wrote a, a column for The Washington Post. Kevin's an around the horn columnist. He does more work for ESPN. We call him uh, the professor because he's a professor at the University of Maryland. Uh, but he wrote a column for the Washington Post, and I have it right here. Basically, there was a trans woman who was allowed to play in the tennis U.S. Open. It was 40-some years ago. Okay. Wow. 40-some years ago. Wow. And have trans women, women all of a sudden dominated women's tennis? Is that something that has even been a conversation over the last 20 years, right? So yeah. to think that 40 some years ago this has happened and now people are saying, hey, guard your children, guard your little girls, everything's going to change. It's insulting. It's yeah. frankly insulting and and it's harmful. And but it is not a new tactic. It's exactly what, you know, what folks who have not wanted inclusion or growth. In this country, this is what they always do. They make everybody else afraid. And it is frankly, of course, it is, you know, we talk about the idea of this podcast and to just speak of it in broader terms and not, you know, to get caught up in, in the minutia of everything. But it's it's what I believe to be that sort of the moral compass of, of what should be the moral compass of this country is inclusivity and is, you know, literally equality. And the more people, the better. And it's just it's just so frustrating because. When you, when you think of, you know, sort of just the way we've almost learned too much, right? We've learned so much over the course of with, as technology has improved so quickly, exponentially. And what's obvious, what should be obvious is that there's so much more about humans and humanity that we just didn't know. Yeah. Okay. There's so and much so, we still don't know. Exactly. Yeah. And so the fact that we're learning faster, I know it's just a lot for people to handle, but if we just go along with the idea that if we can accept, embrace, and learn, we'll all realize that the familiarities, the similarities are way greater than the differences. And that is, it's not just a unifier. It's not just some patriotic, you know, nonsense that people can create. 
it literally helps people live longer. Like there's studies about people in greater communities, you know, with unified families and just, you know, larger communities that are beyond the family that you live longer because you, you don't deal with the stresses and you don't deal with a lot of the negativity around you and you have ways to express, you know, and God help me if I had ways to express what I was thinking when I was, you know, 13 to, you know, 28, let's mm. say, it would have been so much more helpful. Now, unfortunately, to have been well adjusted because I've got great family and friends around me. But man, like the ability to express those things is absolutely important, especially you want to do it before these fear mongers speak yeah. for you and try yeah. to paint this certain picture for you. So it's just wildly frustrating. And I hear you, man. I want to get to the bigotry and the fear piece of this a little bit more. But before we do, we should take down this straw man, I think. So the right, the real reason behind these efforts is everything that you just talked about. But there's this notion that trans women with biologically male characteristics would unfairly compete against cisgender women. Now, have we actually seen this happen at all, ever? How common is this? And if not, is there anything that's underlying this narrative that they're pointing to as evidence of this being a problem? And how much of this has to do with gender-affirming hormone therapy versus, versus not? So these are some of the details that uh, I would literally have to just read up on a little bit more in terms of uh, the hormone therapy and everything else. Um, I think, however, to your initial question there of the idea of it having happened before and there is um, Kester Samanya, uh, 2018. She, she is a Olympian from South Africa. Okay. Who, and she has been sort of held up as this example of, hey, if you allow, you know, trans women that they will take over the sport because she is successful. And, you know, there's been legislation uh, actually written, basically citing her and, and trying to get, you know, trans youth sprinters, you know, from, from being able to compete against women. And so the interesting part, and you ask if it's common, no, it's absolutely not common. Um, it will become more common as we have trans girls who are feeling free and wanting to play in these sports. But here's another aspect of that, which is also sort of maddening, like this idea that these girls, these very innocent girls who are doing something that is even they recognize at a young age is, is as bold as it is and is as identity confirming and important as it is that they're going to want to participate in these sports that yeah. degrade them, that, you know, speak about them in terms of hormones and their, you know, their genitals and how they were born and, and, and just these things that, that they'd have to go through just to what? To, to hold up a trophy with what? A, a bunch of teammates that you can't even know if they're on your side or not. You have no idea whether they you know, understand who you are. And so I don't think that the draw to sports is that great for, for these trans girls and women. Um, now, for those that where the draw is enough to, for them to overcome these things, I applaud them, first of all. Um, but no, it's never going to become common, uh, I don't believe, because you think about how long we've had sports in general and how long we've had, you know, gender questions and people, whether it be underground or, or not really discussed uh, out loud, like, no, this, this is not something that we have an army of trans girls who are like, um, you know, trying to convince the world that, you know, they should take over sports. It has nothing to do with sports. It's not a sports discussion. It's an identity discussion. Right. So they're also creating a stigma that every time a trans person wins, it's because they're trans. And right. and the under like the subtext there is they're cheating. Right. That's what they want people to feel. Yes. And so <laughs> and we'll get to the they in a minute. But yes. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> and, and I mean, and so and and the reason that it, it seems painfully obvious to them is it because, oh, there is no equivalent on the men's side. And so because there isn't some other, you know, gender or sex that is uh, superior physically to men that is all of a sudden. So it's just like, oh, well, it's, it's obvious that so they shouldn't play there. So and, and it's just it's just so much. It's just so layered. And the idea of fairness, again, is what is it fair that a transgender person has no place to play? Yeah. Is it fair that they they cannot assign their own gender identity by what's by what they actually feel and then say, oh, OK, I have I have no place to play. You won't let me because you think I'm dominant and they I can't play there because it's not safe for me anymore because I've mm -hmm. changed you know, my body and my hormones. And so 
Um, that's not fair either. And yeah. and what are we really talking about? What are sports? Like if you're talking of sports as a career decision to try to make money, okay, well, these are your challengers. Go ahead. That's the landscape and things change bigger, faster, stronger. It happens in, in sports everywhere. And so, uh, and the men's side as well. It's called evolution. And so now that we've evolved and said, oh, there, it's not just the binary. There are definitely different types of people. Let's try to integrate and let's see what happens. Because in the end, what are we talking about? Right. It's winning and losing. It's feeling good and feeling shitty. And sorry for my language. And so if you want to feel good at the expense of a whole group of people never having the opportunity, good for you. You're an evil piece of shit. So we should drop a little science here for our listeners. There was a, a, a study in the British Journal of Sports Medicine that looked at push-ups, sit-ups, and running fitness tests for trans men and women in the U.S. Air Force undergoing gender-affirming treatment. And they identified a 15 to 31% athletic advantage that trans women displayed over their cisgender counterparts prior to starting gender-affirming hormone therapy, which is why I mentioned it. But this largely disappeared after therapy. Which means after one year of taking hormones, there was literally no difference in push-ups or run times between trans and cis men. So I mention this because I believe the NCAA has included hormone therapy as one of the rules for trans athletes, trans women participating in, in the sport. Is that accurate? Yes. So this, so this, this is essential. Uh, it gets, it sort of debunks this fairness argument because there actually are there are mechanisms in the rules of sports for dealing with this. So I just want to, I just want to underscore that this is this is what the science says. Right. And so I, that's actually it's a great point, and it's something that I uh, it sort of brings me back to something that I wanted to bring up at yeah. uh, at the beginning of this conversation was. You know, I initially and in my, uh, you know, after, you know, I came out in 20, 2009, I came out my personally, my personal life in 2015 sort of came out uh, publicly. And I remember sort of wrapping, start, starting to discover the transgender uh, discussion and wrapping my, you know, myself in, in, in some of the research on it. And I remember saying to myself at the time, like, man, um, the more this becomes a, a popular subject, the more difficult it's going to be for people to wrap their minds around yes. it because we're making sudden leaps, right? It's like, uh, and I say sudden, I mean, you know, we're talking about uh, human yeah. evolution. So it's got to be a little yeah. slow, especially in America. Um, so you're talking about, okay, acceptance of gays. All right, we, we're getting there, right? Um, and then it's just, oh, okay, transgender, hmm, that's more confusing. And then you throw sports in there and it's just like, whoa, now I'm forced to, just, to think about this because it's involving my, you know, my everyday interests and my everyday entertainment. Yeah. Yeah. And my initial thought was that's going to make it difficult for the entirety of the LGBT community because it is sort of the more difficult subject, again, to wrap your mind around. But now I'm glad that it's out there in the forefront because now it's all right. It's basically, you know, exercise. You work really hard. Um, you get the results. And so if they can work their minds around uh, every single element of that LGBT flag, then then we're all better off for it. And yeah. so the more we discuss a transgender athlete, the better off I am. And the more we force people just to think. And frankly, I mean, I know it's hard, uh, but it's the best way to go. Yeah. So really, this is about completely preventing participation, which is where all this comes down to. It's not about fairly crowning a champion or ensuring an even playing field. It's not about fairness. They want to tell the thousands of trans youth that they can't play soccer or gymnastics or basketball on the team they would fit into because there's a chance they would be better than everyone else. Yeah. And you know who else that they uh, thought that about? was black athletes uh, hmm. in, you know, the 20s and 30s and 40s. And that was the whole the whole mm -hmm. uh, part of the fear factor when it came to allowing Jackie Robinson and other black uh, baseball players into Major League Baseball. So, again, not a new tactic, not, um, you know, this this epiphany of, oh, OK, we've figured something out here. This change definitely isn't good. It's just more fear. All right. Back to the culture war, because I think with that context, it should be clear exactly why. And I think you put this really well. It should be clear why sports has become the new front on this war. And transgender people have been a target outside of sports. In addition, we just talked about last week, Arkansas uh, overrode the governor's veto to essentially ban trans healthcare in Arkansas. And this has nothing to do with sports, but it also has everything to do with sports. 
Is it possible that picking sports as the domain to wage this new front of the culture war could actually backfire because of the weakness of the argument, but also for all the reasons that you just pointed out about the speed with which we tend to make these advancements? Yeah. I I don't think in the long term it's going to backfire. I think in the short term, it is, it's the largest stumbling block because it is what people think that they know. They think it's as simple as, hey, I understand sports. Don't come in here, tell me I don't understand sports. Mm-hmm. I know what women's sports looks like. I know what men's sports look like. Therefore, I know this whole gender conversation. And of course, they do not know that. And so, um, you know, I start to think of, you know, ways that it can advance, like ways people can, can get past that while still being focused on sports. And this is where that that wall has to be broken between, you know, sports is just my entertainment and sports is real life. I think you do it by these athletes um, using their platforms and showing the rest of their lives. And I can't help but think of Dwayne Wade, Mm. who has a trans daughter, uh, Zaya Wade. And this was a very public transformation because Zaya, um, while still identified as a boy, um, was trying to come out to his, well, not come out to his family, it had come out to his family, but was coming out, trying to come out to the world as early as nine years old. And his fam, uh, at the time, his family was saying, hey, um, let's give this some time. Let's ease you into this because you're going to be a public figure because you're my uh, son at the time yeah. and, and, and also of, of Gabrielle Union, who's a, a pu- very public figure as well. And, you know, after a couple of years, they brought uh, Zaya to uh, Gay Pride in Miami. Great. But the blowback that you heard and saw from fans of Dwayne Wade was jarring, absolutely jarring. Don't bring that nonsense into my world, they said. Okay, wow. Don't you you have feminized you and Gary Union have have uh, uh, I mean, the the absolute insults, you know, by bringing in this leftist, uh, you know, actress into into the world of the athlete look at the older boy they said he's an athlete and now this one has been has been affected by all the it's absolutely insane and what's beautiful to watch or what has been beautiful to watch is Dwayne Wade who look I fought I covered him as a rookie uh, so he was 21 years old so I've seen Dwayne evolve as a basketball player as a human being and I know that he would not have been able to handle this properly if he'd, you know, had to deal with it at age 22 or 23. And I don't say properly. I mean, he wouldn't have been ready to, right? He, he would have eventually after some education or what have you. But just everything he's learned uh, over the years as a father, as a human, the things that he's had to go through. And now with him and Gabrielle basically handling this as close to perfect as you can, um, it just, it, it forces people to understand. And even if, and this is a horrible thing to think about because like you're essentially using your child, not you, but the world is using your child as a meat shield to say, hey, look at all these evil responses to somebody who's just trying to live their life. Let's back off of that. Let's maybe see through the eyes of the child or, you know, of the family and, and maybe not make these judgments. And I think that, again, has forced people to 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 have the, the transgender discussion, to to, to even speak to their kids about it, because that's another, I mean, again, that's that. And we talked about this earlier, the idea that somebody at this age, at a nine, 10, 11 year old can say to themselves, you know, I, I am, I am not the person that everybody else believes I am. I need to make the bold decision to say who I am. Anybody who thinks that that is decided with sports in mind or some sort of fame at all, yeah, like, or success or career decisions at all is just not actually thinking about it as a human being. And like my, my position on, on humanity is just that <laughs> our default position is accepting. Our default position is kind. Why do I believe that? Yeah. When people say, oh, the animal kingdom, look at all those, all those animals fighting each other. They're different species. Yeah. Okay. We are the yeah. same species and we all just come from different areas and have different, uh, uh, different uh, traditions. And that's all that is. And so, uh, and you can just tell by the pattern of the world and especially by the pattern of this country, it is the human default. If you go long-term, you're going to get, you know, the good winning over the evil. It's just you know, hitting people over the head with that over and over again and realizing that it's just simple, you know, human humanity. I I think people just don't get that these days. And, you know, that's just a product of, you know, too much information and not enough right information. Yeah, I I, I totally agree with you. 
although it doesn't happen automatically and it doesn't happen without effort. You've been open about your sexuality for several years, but of course that wasn't always the case, right? You came out publicly with a blog post, I think eight days before your wedding in 2015. Exactly. Um, uh, So, you know, how has being your full self allowed you to grow professionally and, and in turn to share other stories through your work? It's been an incredible sort of last six years. Um, Just seeing or experiencing the evolution or sort of the growth that just comes with, hey, there's an extra level of confidence that comes with being, you know, who you are and being, you know, at the forefront uh, with that and being proud and being non, you know, non-apologetic about it. Especially in sports. Right. Yeah. And I think what, what gave me that ability was, you know, essentially being closeted for in, in the industry uh, for what was 15 years. And Man, like to think about hackers actually said that out loud. That's a long period of time to just to just hold back an entire portion of yourself. And it's I'd never want anybody to have to do that. Yeah. And so um, that first stage of just having that sort of confidence and just just walking and speaking like you're not hiding anything. I think that, you know, took about a couple of years to really soak in and really appreciate. And then I think the next level was just recognizing, especially with with my particular minority group or our particular minority yeah. group, um, how easy it is to make an impact. And so um, I remember one time I was at a outside of a, a bar and this young lady came up to me and, you know, said, hey, Israel, uh, it's like a bucket list situation that I'm meeting you. And I was like, what? <laughs> She's like, yeah, the things that you've done for the LGBT community. And wow. at the time, all I've done was, you know, come out couple of times, you know, spoken about certain issues. And I didn't realize that I, you know, that, that you could have that sort of an impact. And so I think that's when I sort of said to myself, okay, um, it doesn't take that much, but I still don't even feel like I'm doing as much. And because I know it doesn't take that much, I feel like I should make it more of a priority for myself. Um, and so I guess the next shift there while I still value, you know, the sports element of my job, I still love, you know, the entertainment part of it. Um, it's not the most important thing to me on the daily. And it's not the most important thing in the big picture in terms of what I want out of this, again, sort of forced media public platform that I have that I never really um, saw, it, at least on the television side. Do you think that's more a product of your growth as an individual or the change in the in the, in the world of sports and sports media specifically? I think it's a combination. I, I do think, though, that in the specific subject of, of being gay in sports, I don't think that it has really been tackled properly um, by the mainstream. And like there's a project that I was working on that uh, I say was because it's just on pause a little bit um, that I feel like can can sort of make people understand it a little bit better and just speak about it the way it should be spoken about. Because I mean, Jesus, like, what are we talking about? Like Jason Collins is 2013. Michael Sam was right around that time. That's right. And, yeah. And, you know, I, rem- I don't, I don't watch football. And I remember like Michael Sam was a big deal for me. And I, and I watched the Super Bowl once a year, right? That's, that's right. my engagement with football for the most part. And it was a big deal. Yeah. And I I think, and so that to me is an important part of what I want to get across. Like I almost want to tell like old, you know, gay love stories in sports. They actually exist. You know what I mean? I want to definitely want to, I need, I need the world to know (laughs) who Glenn, uh, Glenn Burke was and just how devastating his life, um, as an openly gay baseball player was and how it shortened it. If we sort of tell the history and shine a spotlight on the things that have happened and are still happening, you know, undercover because they feel like they have to be undercover. Um, then, then it won't be, Hey, somebody come save us. It'll be, Hey, you guys, like, you don't need to do that. You know what I mean? Like it's all good. And, you know, I know there's a ton of gay athletes now who their teammates know that they're gay. They just don't announce it or they don't make a public to do out of it. And everybody says, Hey, isn't that the goal? Isn't that progress? Isn't that what we want? Yes. And no, because those people probably still have to hide portions of themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, those men 
probably don't bring their partner to the family room after the game to meet, you know, all the other girlfriends and wives. And so while they're focusing on their career and putting that to the side, and it's okay because, you know, people around me know it's still deep inside. It's still self-hatred. It's still not. There's still um, shame there. Yeah. They're still not loving yourself. And that's, I mean, Jesus, that's one of the things I've learned the most over the past 10, 11 years is the importance of that, loving yourself. And so that's the part that if we just kind of opened up and just even just look at the women's games and and sports and just recognize, wow, they've powered through a lot of women have and have, and you have openly gay athletes all over the women's side, but why doesn't that count? Because they're women? No, of course it counts. Of course they have the same, uh, not same, but have very, uh, a a large amount of stereotypes, large amounts of things that they have to fight through of hatred of, of, you know, the WNBA overly feminizing their sport and their ads just to try to, you know, not feel like, they are a gay league. It's just all insulting. Wow. And and they Is that real? They do oh, that. Oh yeah, absolutely. Oh, there's examples wow, of that man. over the years. Now they've they've since evolved and you know there's too many vo- and this is what I'm talking about. There's <laughs> so many vocal gay uh you know LGBT women, LGBTQ women in in sports that they are making a change and allowing for other LGBTQ women to be themselves and going into sports and on the men's side we don't see that as an example for some reason. Hmm. We don't see that as as what can happen. We don't see them as our gay heroes because we don't think that they had it as tough, which is, which is insane, you know? And so um, I, that's what I would like to to get across and, and, and just open up, I guess. And I know some people have tried. I don't want to say that there haven't been, you know, films made or, or journalists, you know, have tackled these subjects. And I just don't think it's gotten enough into the mainstream so that, you know, we can all sort of reference in our head, oh, a David Cope, oh, a Billy Bean, oh, a Burt, and just keep those lessons in mind and not have to repeat history. Yeah, yeah. After coming out and building a life where you are truthful to yourself and to others, how does it feel to imagine a young transgender athlete being told they don't belong in 2021? They can't play in 2021. I mean, it's got to be 10 times, 100 times worse than what I'd felt because I wasn't overtly told to my face that say, Hey, you're a danger. Hey, you can't do this. I always used to think I couldn't play with the other guys because, you know, I would give something away or I wasn't good enough or because they told me, you know, like with not so many words, Hey, if you think like this, or if you act like this, you can't clearly be as good as we are. Your anatomy wasn't being scrutinized by the rule makers. It has to be so painful just here. And then, you know, I don't want that to be the decision that motivates me to do something. You know, I want to be genuinely organically motivated, not out of hatred or fear or to, you know, I guess proving people wrong is sort of at the core of sports, but you know, this is a different level of wrong, right? This is, this is, you know, you are not the human that you think you are. And it's just like, how could you say that to another person, especially after all we've learned? But I guess that's the problem is, you know, we've got uh, older, let's just say, or stuck in their ways, folks who are these lawmakers. And, you know, going back to something I said earlier about leaving, you know, these, the politics and the decisions to the smarter people who devote, devote their lives to it. I mean, no, that's not a thing. Like it needs to be people who are driven, um, to do the right thing and to maintain, you know, the actual priorities and beliefs that we've had, you know, from the beginning uh, of this country. And so, I mean, I, you know, I laugh all the time when I think of, you know, Hamilton and I think of uh, <laughs> uh, the idea that we got so mad over taxing tea I know. and like, w- good God, the things we would do, you know, these individual states would do to get angry over and, you know, just become their, it's, it's, it's insane. Like yeah. people don't have the proper perspective on things. And again, humanity is worse off as a result. Speaking of the proper perspective on things. So I want to quote from this Kevin Blackstone column. He writes, the anti-trans youth athlete bills metastasizing in Republican-controlled legislatures aren't about leveling uneven playing fields. They aren't protections for girls and young women who identify with their birth sex. They are, instead, the latest salvos in a culture war waged the past few years by those who wish to impose 19th century Eurocentric Christian values on 21st century people who are diverse in every way. What more fiendish way to do so than kids' sports? Now, 
when I read that, I I thought sort of immediately about um, the the sort of rhetoric that we're now seeing escalate, the rhetoric and the politics that we're seeing escalate on the far right. And I put Tucker Carlson's nativism and his white replacement theory in that bucket. Oof. I put America first in that bucket. And they just created a policy institute on Capitol Hill called America First Policy Institute. It's supposed to be this sort of think tank, and I put think tank in air quotes because I don't think there's a whole lot of thinking going on there, um, to advocate for Trump's policies, whatever that means. And then you have the Marjorie Taylor Greene's, you know, Anglo-Saxon caucus in Congress. And all of this just feels exactly the same to me. It it has the same emotional signature to it. Um, and so... First of all, I want to know: Do you do you agree with Blackstone? Is this is this fight against trans youth and transgenderism generally just one more way we're seeing the hopefully last gaps of this sort of grievance, this white identity politics or moral relativism? And where do you think it goes from here? And what can people do? I definitely agree with Kevin, and you know, and it's just to not to oversimplify it, but it goes back to what we were talking about earlier in terms of, you know, fear of change and, and the necessity to, to create, you know, fear so that such change said change doesn't happen. And, you know, it is, it is, whether you want to call it a, a white nationalist thing, whether you want to call it a, you know, evangel a Christian thing. Um, it is just old thinking that is trying to be repurposed in today's society to create a sense of community and, you know, whatever you want to call it, strengthen among a very specific group of people. Right. And, and they have big numbers and they have a lot of support and because they've had over centuries, but it's sort of what I've talked about before. It's just like the human default is toward um, acceptance. It is, it is toward evolution. It is toward um, inclusivity. And I almost feel like this is a last gasp effort because you can't be this overt, okay, and try and think that it won't eventually be called out and changed, um, regardless of what kind of numbers you have or what kind of support you have, because that's the support is, is uneducated and easy to be easy to sway and easy to, you know, just move along from because they don't really have any power because they don't really have any intelligence. All they have is, you know, their keyboards. And so I, I just believe that that is the, again, the more we include, and this is, you know, whether, and what can people do? I think, you know, whether it's, whether it's, um, not avoiding the subject, frankly, reaching out to your lawmakers, to your senators, your state senators, frankly, and saying this goes against everything that I believe is an American, everything I believe is a human. And, you know, forcing, again, people to think about these things. And, you know, whether you go back and use examples of race, um, whether you go back and use examples of sexuality, or uh, whether you go back and use examples of, you know, immigrants and immigration, eventually, we lean the right way. And we accept. And so this is probably I know in my lifetime as, as an American, it feels like the hardest fight we've had, but not really, because, you know, in my parents lifetime, for example, they were hanging black people about two or three hours north of here on the regular. And that's not something that was that long ago. And so I do think that, um, you know, back then it was there wasn't as much of a fight or as much of a worldwide united fight with, you know, this connection through um, through the Internet and, and through communication uh, advancements. And so um, I think the resistance can be a little stronger. Right. Mm -hmm. And that's what that is. Essentially, they, they think of yeah. us as the resistance. We're not yeah, the resistance. Right. They are the yeah. resistance. They're <laughs> literally resisting the, the ideal of growth and what this country was built on. And so that resistance can be a little smarter, can be a little technologically yeah. inclined themselves, but eventually we'll get to the right place. Yeah. So um, there's one more thing, but we saw recently uh, Major League Baseball pull out of Atlanta over the voting rights mm -hmm. law that they signed. And so I'm wondering how you're thinking about what we'll see from uh, from major other major sports organizations over these trans anti-transgender bills um, and and whether what we what what you think we will see and what should happen because the NCAA I think did um, 
say that they were they were going to uh, something in the statement I said they said something like look very closely at venues where people can't participate equally or something like that and I, it was it was very vague and I don't think they've actually taken any formal action but what do you think is going to happen there all right. What I think is going to happen is I think the more often we're going to have people speak up uh, for those who are being wronged or potentially being wronged in, in these bills and in this legislation, and that we're going to force leagues, teams, et cetera, uh, to, to make more of these changes. But they have to have some sort of value to them. They have to have in the name of progress, not just in the name of, hey, reshuffle your dollars to a different state. And I think what needs to happen is if you actually, and this this is not the job of these sports leagues, it's not, but if these sports leagues say preemptively or, or just to have, get ahead of it and say, hey, Texas, you guys have a Super Bowl this year, a few years, you guys have, you know, this, this, there's a lot of problematic laws on your books, a lot of them. Start addressing those, whether, you know, it's something that is on your plate right now or something that is not even in your forecast, you know, in the next year or two, look at these specific things, you know, ask yourself why they're still there and address them before they become a problem. Because in that, you know, you're, you're basically threatening them with, with, you know, their dollars going away and it becoming a public issue that pretty much the, uh, the rest of the country or the rest of the left leaning country, let's just say, will, will, will loudly support. And then all of a sudden you've got this controversy. So I do think that sports teams can sort of do the work and say, you know, where is the potential problem by, you know, hosting a, uh, bowl game in Idaho? Well, you know, and so, uh, that, that's the only thing that I could think of that uh, off the top of my head that really, um, would get ahead of this and would frankly be beneficial for everybody, right? Cause you're, you're, you're getting rid of or changing out antiquated laws and, um, and, you know, anti-inclusive laws, and and you know, yeah. then you avoid mixing sports and politics because you got ahead <laughs> of it, and you didn't have to be an issue. Israel Gutierrez, before I let you go, where can everybody find you on the internet? Do you want to be found on the internet? Uh, I mean, you know, you can find me on Instagram. You recently I'm, deleted your Twitter account, I hear. Uh, I deactivated it for okay. a while. It's a little bit of a social experiment, which okay. is going great, by the way. Uh, <laughs> but it's also just a little bit of, again, learning uh, to love myself and realizing that I don't need to get involved in in a lot of these things that happen on that, on that particular app. Yep. Uh, I'm not saying I won't be back, but... Um, right now you can just find me on Instagram at Mr. Is Gutierrez, M-R-I-Z-G-U-T-I-E-R-R-E-Z. And who knows if my following on there gets super big, then maybe I'll be really active there and be more of a voice. But, uh, right now, so, and I've got rid of my Facebook a long time ago. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, you can find me there on Instagram or, and I actually, ugh. I have my email address currently on my bio <laughs> on Instagram. I'm maybe thinking you about don't deleting that. that. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> maybe you don't. Because I've gotten some random emails lately. But hey, while it's still up there, you can hit me up. <laughs> Find them on Insta. Thank you so much, Izzy, for doing this. Appreciate it. Hey, my pleasure. It's a blast. Thank you to everyone at home or on the go for listening today. If you have any questions or advice for us, you can reach us at podcast at politicology.com. And make sure you're following us on Twitter and Instagram at PoliticologyPod. I'm Ron Steslow. I'll see you in the next episode.